When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The corruption should find its way into the governments of our infant republics and contaminate the very source of legislation, or the impure motives should contribute to the passage of a law or the formation of a legislative contract are circumstances most deeply to be deplored. Chief Justice John Marshall, in the ruling of Fletcher v. Peck, 16th of March, 1810. The validity of this rescinding act, then, might well be doubted, were Georgia a single sovereign power. But Georgia cannot be viewed as a single, unconnected sovereign power, on whose legislature no other restrictions are imposed than may be found in its own constitution. She is a part of a large empire. She is a member of the American Union, and that union has a constitution, the supremacy of which all acknowledge— and which imposes limits to the legislatures of the several states, which none can claim a right to pass. Chief Justice John Marshall, in the ruling of Fletcher v. Peck, March 16, 1810. Thus far in our narrative, we haven't had many Supreme Court cases that have been deemed significant in the annals of history. Indeed, Marbury v. Madison is probably the only one we've encountered thus far. However, the case of Fletcher v. Peck, though not quite as well known by the general public, did establish important legal precedents that still stand over 200 years later. Before we get into the details of this case, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to JP and Alex for providing the intro quotes for this episode. JP is a listener of the podcast who reached out via email to share how much he's enjoyed the show thus far and to take me up on an offer I'd put out there a while back for listeners to volunteer to read an opening quote. That offer is still open, I might add, and as you can see. It's not always easy to balance work on the podcast with the other developments of life, be it when work gets busy or when we're going through challenging times personally. Those affirmative messages that this work does mean something to folks out there have a way of coming in just when I need them the most. So to JP and all of you who have reached out, I cannot begin to tell you how much I appreciate it. And for anyone else who is interested in reading an opening quote, feel free to reach out to me on social media or via email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. Alex is, of course, my better half, who helps me out from time to time with opening quotes. In addition to that, behind the scenes, he and I talk out issues I'm having with a script or brainstorm ideas for the podcast. It's thanks to him that I'm doing this in the first place. I'll never forget the evening that we were talking in the kitchen, and all of a sudden, he asked me if I had ever thought of doing a podcast. Years later, here I am, and here we are. For all the inspiration and support that he's provided me in all aspects of my life, I cannot thank him enough. Je t'aime avec tout mon cœur, mon mari. Before we forge ahead, let's do a quick recap from the last episode. 
French Emperor Napoleon, in the midst of domestic turmoil and a military quagmire in the Iberian Peninsula, instead focused his attention on divorcing Empress Josephine in favor of the Austrian Archduchess Marie-Louise. John Quincy Adams assumed his post as U.S. Minister to Russia and quickly became a favorite of Tsar Alexander. Meanwhile, back in the United States, John Jacob Astor set his sights on a grandiose global trading scheme that included a series of trading posts crossing the North American continent and when the U.S. government, and specifically the Madison administration, refused to help him, he turned first to the Russians, then to the British, to form a partnership that would provide him with the security needed to carry forward with his plans. Now that we've caught up on where we're at, I'm going to have to pull back to focus in on a thread that we've been weaving through our narrative, mostly under the surface, but occasionally popping up from time to time, notably in episodes 1.24, The Muskogee and Matthews, 3.09, Yazoo to You 2 3.15, Of War and Pieces, and 3.25, What's Next? What has been dubbed the Yazoo Controversy not only stretched on through four American presidencies, but also involved some of the leading figures of the time, including Alexander Hamilton, John Randolph of Roanoke, Albert Gallatin, and yes, even President James Madison. If you'd like to go back to those episodes and review what we've covered thus far in more depth, I welcome you doing so. But for those who just want to forge ahead, I'm also going to attempt to do a condensed synopsis and try to bring us up to 1810. Now, I'd like to say up front that the intricacies of the Yazoo controversy have been difficult for me to process over the years, especially since most of the texts that I had encountered about it until recently had only provided a piecemeal portion of a much larger picture, typically in the context of one figure or one event in the larger story. It only fully came together for me when I found a copy of C. Peter McGrath's Yazoo, Law, and Politics in the New Republic, the case of Fletcher V. Peck. I'll be up front here. It is an amazing work of scholarship, and for those truly interested in the details of this, I highly recommend checking it out. However, it's probably not going to be a page-turner for the casual history reader. I'll do my best in this synopsis to make the content in it more approachable. With that caveat given, let's dive in, shall we? The Yazoo Controversy, as we've discussed in prior episodes, began when, on January 7, 1795, the Georgia State Legislature passed a bill that was signed by then-Governor George Matthews, which, as described by McGrath, finalized the deal whereby, quote, for $500,000 in specie currency, four land companies received 35 million acres of land, two-thirds of the Georgia territory west of the Chattahoochee River. If that sounds like a good amount of land, well, it is. We've discussed land speculation in the lands west of the Appalachians before, and this was also happening with the then-unorganized territory claimed by Georgia. Not only did Georgia's governors and politicians in the 1780s and 1790s willingly deliver much land into the hands of speculators, at times, quote, they even distributed non-existent land. Beyond just the problem of so much land being held by so few, the means by which this went about is circumspect. As noted by McGrath in his account, quote, the executive minutes of Governor George Matthews' administration 
revealed that in 1794 and 1795, a number of the legislators who voted to sell the Yazoo lands, as these lands would come to be called, received in flagrant disregard of the state law large grants of land in the eastern part of Georgia. Dirty dealings at its finest. You give us these lands in the frontier to make a profit from, we'll give you this land in the more established part of Georgia for your own personal benefit. Governor Matthews initially vetoed the bill, but somehow, shortly after, was persuaded, though there's no evidence that he received a bribe, to give his consent to the sale. The first of many politicians over the 15-plus years that this drama would carry on who would use it to his political benefit was U.S. Senator James Jackson, Democratic-Republican from Georgia. Initially, Jackson worked at the federal level to have the Washington administration, quote, negotiate a treaty with the native Indians in order that their titles might be extinguished and the purchasers could take full possession of the land. By March 1795, however, Jackson was drafting articles to have printed in newspapers in Georgia decrying, quote, the rapacious grasping of a few sharks. His anti-Yazoo articles were reprinted and circulated to be used as talking points for anti-Yazoo candidates to the Georgia State Legislature, who went on to sweep the elections that year. Jackson, resigning his seat in the U.S. Senate upon winning election to the state legislature, used this new position to consolidate his political power. And, as noted by McGrath, quote, from November 1795 until his death, Jackson was the state's undisputed political leader. In those days, the legislature elected the state's officers, and Jackson saw to it that his ally, Jared Irwin, was elected as governor for 1796 and 1797. He had himself chosen governor for the next two years, and then in 1800, he returned to the United States Senate. During this time, he would cultivate protégés who would continue his political movement after his death, including one name who you'll want to make a note of as he'll be showing up more in our narrative as time goes on. This was a young Georgia planner named William H. Crawford. But I digress. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. The main thing that we need to know for our purposes in this episode is that this new anti-Yazoo legislature on February 13, 1796, passed one bill that voided the sale of the Yazoo lands to the four companies, and another bill that, quote, ordered excised 
from the state records all documents concerned with the Yazoo sale. The anti-Yazooists weren't just out to reverse what had been done, but wanted to obliterate all trace of the corrupt deal. As described by McGrath, quote, these state records and the original copy of the act were burned at a ceremony in the public square of Louisville, Georgia, the site of the legislative session. With the members of the legislature ringing the fire, the messenger of the house dropped the usurped act in the flames, proclaiming, God save the state and long preserve her rights. And may every attempt to injure them perish as these corrupt acts now do. As the records burned, one other important event happened which would have a significant impact on the Yazoo controversy. One of the land speculation companies involved sold off most of their holdings to another company called the New England Mississippi Land Company. Prior to this sale, most of the folks investing in the Yazoo lands had been based in Georgia, though that number had included key leaders from the state, such as Supreme Court Justice James Wilson and U.S. Senator James Gunn. And there were some non-Georgians involved, including Senator Robert Morris of Pennsylvania and Representative Robert Goodloe Harper of South Carolina. Now, though, you primarily had folks from Connecticut and Massachusetts, including prominent politicians such as Postmaster General Gideon Granger and the former Secretary of the Treasury Samuel Dexter involved. This decisively made this issue a national one rather than just a state or regional agitation. Now, I'm going to mostly skip over the details of the back and forth in the debate over the ensuing years, both in print and in the halls of Congress. But just know that there was a back and forth happening with sometimes shifting leaders on either side. The former Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, wrote out a legal opinion that was pro-Yazoo and that McGrath notes, quote, is almost certainly the first statement of what eventually became a major constitutional doctrine an act of a state legislature may have the quality of a legal contract and it cannot be broken without violating the contract clause of the Constitution. Hamilton's opinion, when printed in 1796, became the core of the pro-Yazoo arguments from that point forward. Especially in the latter days of the Washington administration and the Adams presidency years, the core of the pro-Yazoo faction were Federalists. They considered the Repeal Act by the Georgia State Legislature to be an unconstitutional precedent that was dangerous to the rule of law. Ultimately, though, when Thomas Jefferson assumed the presidency, he would take up the authority granted to the president in a legislative act passed in 1800 and that his predecessor had not been able to bring to fruition. Jefferson appointed three of his new cabinet members, Secretary of State James Madison, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, and Attorney General Levi Lincoln as commissioners to meet with three commissioners from Georgia, one of whom was U.S. Senator James Jackson, to negotiate a resolution to the issue. The incoming administration had a vested interest in settling the Yazoo controversy as the Mississippi Territory had been created in the western portions of the lands claimed by Georgia, and part of which included the disputed Yazoo lands. And chill the questions of who ultimately had jurisdiction over the lands and who had clear titles to the land were answered. 
there was no way the territory would be able to grow and develop towards eventual statehood. The six commissioners ultimately signed Articles of Agreement and Session on April 24, 1802, which they hoped would bring about an end to the controversy. Georgia agreed to transfer all Western lands to the United States for $1,250,000. They also agreed to a clause which reserved one-tenth of the Yazoo lands to settle, quote, claims which may be made to the said lands or to any part thereof. This laid the groundwork for the three federal commissioners to send a recommendation to Congress on February 16, 1803, quote, that five million acres of the former Georgia lands be set aside to satisfy all legitimate claims which were a consequence of the Repeal Act, and that the claimants be allowed to choose compensation either in the form of land or in money not exceeding $5 million to be derived from the sale of land in the Mississippi Territory. Settle the claims, get everything squared away, and the Mississippi Territory can go about its merry way, right? Sounds reasonable enough. Cue the poster boy for unreasonable opposition. That's right, dear listener. Here's where Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, enters the drama. As described by McGrath, quote, In a sense, John Randolph was to the New England Yazooist what James Jackson had been to the Georgia Yazooist, for he made a frenzied and doctrinaire opposition to the claims a central feature of his political career. But why would Randolph get involved in an issue that didn't directly involve him or his constituents? McGrath makes three points with which I'm in agreement, based on what I know of Randolph. First, quote, as an agrarian of the Virginia plantation aristocracy, Randolph saw the land speculators as a species of the financial capitalist whom he despised. He was already set up to ideologically oppose the big business feel of this. Folks from hundreds of miles away were going to profit from land they hadn't even seen and had no intention of settling themselves. And at this point, the profit would be facilitated by the federal government? John Randolph was not having any of that. The other two points, though, is where we really get to Randolph's motivation. As described by McGrath, quote, John Randolph opposed the administration-backed compensation bill because he was a natural oppositionist. He was at his best as a critic, and in his few years as an administration leader, he was really out of character. At one point, Randolph was the go-to person for the Jefferson administration in order to get things done in Congress. But increasingly over the years, while not becoming an official member of the Federalist opposition, Randolph established his own in-house opposition within the Democratic-Republican faction, sometimes dubbed the tertium quids, or the third way. One key factor, though, fueled Randolph's connection and drive to launch headlong into opposition to a resolution of the Yazoo claims. Namely, the fact that the idea had come, at least in part, from Secretary of State James Madison. As we've already seen, and we'll see more as time goes on, Randolph had an almost pathological hatred of James Madison. It led him in 1808 to try to convince James Monroe to stand against Madison in the presidential election. Anything Randolph could do to oppose Madison, he would go out of his way to do. And so it was 
that Randolph picked up the anti-Yazoo baton from James Jackson and ran with it in the halls of Congress. As Randolph biographer David Johnson wrote, quote, As Madison crafted a plan to pay the claimants, Randolph saw nothing less than federal usurpation of state sovereignty. His opposition was sure and vicious, and it cracked the Republican alliance. Representative John G. Jackson, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, who is also Dolly Madison's brother-in-law, rose in the House to defend Secretary of State Madison from Randolph's attacks, and the two would end up in a verbal back and forth. Randolph would at one point accuse Jackson and all those who supported the compromise as being motivated by, quote, the spirit of federalism, a slap in the face to committed Democratic-Republicans. And Jackson took it as such. In his attacks of the Yazoo Settlement, Randolph was in sync with the majority of the Virginia delegation to the House. But this did not mean that he was aligned with the leadership of the Democratic-Republican faction, particularly as he kept attacking one leader after another. Randolph personally accused Postmaster General Gideon Granger of exerting undue influence on the deliberations when Granger entered the House chamber during one of Randolph's harangues. Randolph asserted that Granger was there, quote, to buy and sell corruption in the gross through mail-carrying contracts which might benefit certain key districts whose representatives would be voting for the matter and would be up for re-election before too long. As mentioned earlier, Granger had a personal stake as one of the claimants to have the Yazoo controversy resolved. I should note that I haven't seen any evidence that Granger did, in fact, make such deals. But I also wouldn't be surprised if he did. Please have your grains of salt at the ready, dear listeners. But from my research, Granger definitely comes across as an under-the-radar political operator who was ready to wheel and deal. Randolph, however, nearly took it one step too far when he accused Granger of buying off Representative Matthew Lyon, Democratic-Republican from Kentucky. Now, that name may sound familiar to long-term listeners of the podcast. Way back in episode 2.8, we were first introduced to Matthew Lyon, then a representative from Vermont, who ended up in a physical altercation with then-representative Roger Griswold, Federalist from Connecticut, on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. Personally speaking, Lyon is not the kind of person that I'd go picking a fight with. But as noted by McGrath, Randolph was equally as combative as Lyon. Thus, Representative Lyon, after Randolph had personally challenged his integrity, rose to dismiss Randolph's accusations, quote, as the brain of a jackal and the fulminations of a madman. Again, from McGrath, quote, since both Randolph and Lyon had bona fide credentials as charter Jeffersonian Republicans, their clash, in a sense, exemplifies the split that the Yazoo issue caused in the Republican ranks. Randolph's and Lyon's flair for personal polemics should not obscure the fact that their hot debate reflected some severe tensions in the governing party. Randolph's opposition was not enough to completely put the issue to bed, but it was enough in four consecutive congressional sessions to ensure that the compromise proposed by the Jefferson administration did not pass. Thus, the Yazoo interests focused their attention on another branch of the government, the judicial branch, to get restitution. 
Thanks to the likes of Alexander Hamilton and others, they already had the legal arguments ready and waiting. They just needed a case. And luckily, there was already one working its way through the courts. Robert Fletcher of New Hampshire had filed suit against John Peck of Massachusetts on June 1, 1803, claiming that a, quote, covenant was broken, as Peck had sold Fletcher 15,000 acres of land that had been part of the Yazoo land deal of 1795. Now, as McGrath explains, it was not in either man's interest for the ruling to go Fletcher's way. Quote, Not only was the suit of Fletcher v. Peck collusive, but it lacked the inherent quality of an adversary proceeding. Fletcher and Peck, after all, shared a common interest in having the validity of the land title upheld. If the federal courts ruled in Peck's favor, both parties stood to gain. Peck would have made a legal sale, and Fletcher would have acquired a potentially valuable title. Both men could be defined as Jesuist, as they both stood to benefit from a ruling in Peck's favor. McGrath admits that, beyond political motivations, we have no explanation for why it took four years before the first ruling was issued in the case. As he notes, quote, a circuit court ruling on Fletcher v. Peck in 1803 or 1804 would have led to an appeal and a decision by the Supreme Court sometime between 1804 and 1806. A decision favorable to the claimants, which they confidently expected, during this period would have been a decision by a court that was being rocked by political pressure. As we've discussed in the podcast, the Jefferson administration and its supporters had rather of a vendetta out for the Federalist-dominated judicial branch in Jefferson's first term. By delaying a ruling, Fletcher v. Peck became an ace up the sleeve of the Yazooists to play if things didn't work out with Congress. And John Randolph ensured that the Yazoo cause would have not just Federalist, but also a good portion of Democratic-Republicans behind a ruling favorable to Peck. In October 1807, the U.S. Circuit Court, presided over by Supreme Court Justice William Cushing and District Court Judge John Davis, ruled for Peck that, quote, Georgia's title was good, the sale of 1795 was valid, and the Repeal Act had not impaired it. However, that was only a lower court ruling. If the matter were to be settled once and for all, it had to be settled by the highest court in the land. Thus, Fletcher claimed, quote, errors in the decision and asked the Supreme Court to examine it by issuing a writ of error to the local tribunal. To argue Fletcher's case was former Maryland Attorney General Luther Martin, who we encountered in episode 3.25 as one of the defense lawyers for Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase in his impeachment trial, and in episode 3.36 as one of Aaron Burr's lawyers during his trial in Richmond. Peck's defense team included former Representative Robert Goodloe Harper, who had also served on Chase's defense, as well as being one of the original Yazooists, and a name that you may be more familiar with, John Quincy Adams. The court issued the writ and scheduled for arguments to be heard in early 1809. On March 11th, the ruling came down the circuit court ruling was reversed. Given what we've learned about Chief Justice John Marshall and his influence on the court at this time, this may come as a surprise to you, dear listener. Indeed, as Marshall biographer Joel Richard Paul wrote, quote, as a young congressman, Marshall voted in favor of the Yazoo Compromise 
and his natural inclination as a land speculator would be to side with the new Yazooist. Moreover, Marshall was keenly aware of the risks to the Union if the Supreme Court failed to provide the New Englanders with a remedy. With that in mind, we should note that there is an asterisk to this ruling. Though the court had to concede that there was, quote, a technical defect in the pleadings made by Peck's attorneys in the proceedings before the lower court, Chief Justice Marshall added an oral statement as he was delivering his written opinion to, quote, let it be known that on two of the main questions, the Supreme Court agreed with the Yazooists. But Peck's failure to argue the question properly forced the court to rule against him. Now, there were a few ways this could have gone. As noted by McGrath, quote, John Marshall was never one to let legal technicality stand in the way of reaching a decision when he wanted to reach a decision. And it is hard to believe that Peck's defective pleading stopped the Chief Justice from deciding the case. Still, the court had overturned the lower court's ruling, so the case could have been sent back to the circuit court. However, as an indication that Marshall really did want to rule on it, but couldn't at the moment, the attorneys for the two litigants quickly, quote, agreed to amend the technical pleas, and the Supreme Court put the case back on the docket for the next term. If Marshall wanted to rule, then why didn't he? The problem was that there were only five justices present to hear the case. Justices Samuel Chase and William Cushing were ill and thus unable to attend. As contentious as the Yazoo controversy had been, Marshall wanted to ensure that the unanimous opinion of all seven justices was put forward in the decision. Again, from McGrath, quote, a ruling endorsed by all seven justices might provide a somewhat greater protection against the kind of political attack which the court had experienced earlier in the decade. In 1810, the case would be re-argued before the Supreme Court, but Peck's legal team had an important change. As we noted last episode, by this point, John Quincy Adams was at the beginning of his new assignment as the U.S. Minister to Russia. Thus, Joseph Story of Massachusetts stepped in to replace him. Story is one whose name you might want to make a note of, as he's going to come up again. Another important difference this go-round was in Luther Marden. Though Marden had been dubbed the quote-unquote federal bulldog for his attacks on the Jefferson administration during the Burr trial, in this case, McGrath describes his arguments as quote, half-hearted and uninspired. Worse than just having a weak case, Marden was apparently so drunk while presenting his arguments before the court that Chief Justice Marshall adjourned the court until Marden could sober up. McGrath notes that this is, quote, the only recorded incident of its kind in Supreme Court history. Now, if we believe that Fletcher always intended to lose the case, Marden's poor showing in the proceedings may have been an intentional slight to ensure a favorable ruling for Peck. Whatever the case, on March 10th, 1810, Marshall and the court came back with an opinion that McGrath describes as, quote, a landmark in the constitutional history of the Young Republic. In the ruling read by Marshall, though the Chief Justice acknowledged that the original land grant of the Yazoo lands in 1795 may have been concluded through less than above-the-board means, it did not change the fact that it was 
done. As noted by Paul, quote, Marshall treated the original legislative land grant of 1795 as if it were a contract between the state of Georgia and the original purchasers. This was a shift from previous legal and political views that treated, quote, land grants as a privilege that sovereigns could convey or withdraw at will. If it was, in fact, a contract, then Article I of the U.S. Constitution forbids states, quote, from passing any laws impairing the obligations of contracts. As described by McGrath, quote, Georgia had made a conveyance of land. It had vested absolute rights. And if these could be recalled, so too could the right of any individual. John Marshall could accept no such principle of legislative omnipotence. Thus, Marshall and the Supreme Court sided with Peck and the Yazooists, and the Georgia Repeal Act was unconstitutional and invalid. Though he had ruled with the majority, Justice William Johnson, sometimes dubbed the first dissenter, issued a concurrent opinion which slightly disputed with Marshall's ruling. As described by Johnson's biographer Donald G. Morgan, Johnson's interpretation of the ruling was focused more on natural law while he still objected, quote, to the retrospective character of the state action and the total absence of compensation to the grantees. While Morgan felt that there was not a political nature to Johnson's concurring opinion, McGrath felt that, quote, by this line of reasoning, Johnson managed to have the best of both constitutional worlds. His opinion supported the claimant's argument that they had been victimized and thus added the endorsement of a prominent Republican judge to the pro-compensation policies of the Madison administration. At the same time, he adhered to Jeffersonian orthodoxy regarding the importance of states' rights. Though he may have had a different interpretation for whatever reason, Johnson was still part of the unanimous ruling in Peck's favor. The Repeal Act was invalid and the Yazoo claims at long last were validated. We should note, however, that the case alone didn't settle the controversy. There was still the matter of getting compensation for the original land claims, which were now in conflict with more recent land claims, sales, and settlement, and that would require congressional action. Given that Southern Democratic Republican leaders were, predictably, not happy with the Fletcher v. Peck ruling, you can imagine that this would not be an easy prospect. That, however, will have to be something that we return to in another episode, for our time together is drawing to a close. Special thanks again to JP and Alex for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Special thanks also to Christian for his audio editing work on this episode. If you're a podcaster like me who is passionate about the work, but for whom time is of the essence, editing can sometimes prove to be a chore that takes you away from the work that you'd rather be doing in researching, recording, and promoting your podcast. That's where Christian can help. By enlisting his audio editing services, I'm able to ensure that a quality-sounding product comes out every time and focus my energies in other areas. If you'd like to get Christian's assistance for your podcast or audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. I often listen to their music while working on scripts, 
and I hope you'll give them a listen on your favorite music player of choice. You can also check out their website, a link to which will be in the sources section for this episode on my website, Presidency's Podcast, that's all one word, dot com. On the Presidency's website, you can find past episodes, sources used for all the narrative episodes, links to resources on the internet to learn more about each U.S. president, and ideas about how you, yes, you, dear listener, can support the work being done here at Presidencies. The easiest way, of course, is to leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, or Spotify. You can also share information about the podcast on social media. I recently had a tweet sent my way in praise of the podcast, which read as follows, quote, I've thoroughly enjoyed each series you've done, but this, i.e. the Madison Presidency series, may be my favorite of the four thus far, in large part because of how much I did not know about this time period. Thanks for giving it the extra detail and attention it so richly deserves. Thanks to all of you who have left reviews and shared information about presidencies, whether online or off. JP shared in his email that he had also turned on a few folks to presidencies. Word of mouth and testimonials have done so much to bring so many to our merry band of students of history, and I'm so thankful to have each of you on this journey with me. If you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to send me an email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on social media. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Finally, I cannot thank you enough for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.